fight. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, about walking as children of light. It's been a great uh, time to dive into this a few weeks ago, and we want to finish it up together here this morning. So Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at this morning, verses 7 through 14. Here's what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pray with me. God, thank you so much again for the opportunity to come together today and to look at your holy word. And as we discuss what it means to walk as children of light, I pray that you would awaken our souls that you would allow us to see that it's about heaven or hell. It's about truth or error. It's about light or darkness. And so help us to understand what it means to walk as children of light. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't heard of LED lighting, then you haven't really lived yet in the 21st century. Invented in 1962, LEDs have been around for over 50 years. So why is it that they're all of a sudden becoming so popular in these last 5 to 10 years? Well, the answer is, straightforward with you, it's about economics, it's about efficiency, and it's about the environment. There, I'm starting to sound like a good Californian now, huh? But it's about how can we make better light at less cost. And, and what really draw, drives all things, though, ultimately in business, is the, is, is the dollar bill, right? It's money. How much does it cost? And primarily economics is what's driving this reformation in light in, uh, in, the, in the world today, moving towards the LED light bulb. Now, while the LED light bulb is more expensive than other forms of light, uh, it does save you money, so to speak, in the long run, as they say, if you were to replace all of your um, lights in your house with LED lighting over the next 10 years, it's projected by some that it could save you around $6,000. And you ask, well, how, how can spending more on a light bulb save me money in the long end? Well, the answer is simple. The product is simply going to last much, much longer. The efficiency of the LED light is simply amazing. Your traditional incandescent light bulb invented by Thomas Edison 136 years ago is only about 20% efficient because the incandescent light bulb works by using electricity to heat up a metal filament that glows when, uh, when it gets hot and then it produces light. Thus, only uh, 20% of it is actually used for light. 80% is lost as heat. On top of this, an incandescent light bulb lasts for only about 5,000 hours. Now, there's a second type of light bulb that also is getting a lot of attention, and that would be uh, the, the light bulb of the compact fluorescent light, and it operates by using an electrical charge to excite mercury vapors sealed with inside of a glass bulb. 
and it works better than the incandescent light, but it still doesn't last as long as the LED light source. And so finally, you have that LED light. And LED, you might ask, what does that stand for? It stands for light emitting diodes, which produce light most efficiently of all. By passing an electric current through a semiconductor, photons are released as light rays, which allow these LEDs to be 80% efficient. And while the incandescent bulbs are said to last around 5,000 hours, the fluorescent bulbs last a little bit longer than that. LED lights are, say, are said to be able to last up to 100 thousand hours, which would be 20 times that of the incandescent bulb. And so you might want to start thinking about heading out of here to Home Depot after the service and buy a bunch of lights, right? I mean, the goal of the LED manufacturers is to replace every light bulb in America, in every home, and in every business with LED lighting. They want to replace what you currently have with something better. And I'm here to tell you this morning of a light source which will never be exhausted. I'm here to tell you this morning of a light that will never burn out, of a light that burns at 100% efficiency. I'm here to tell you about the light of the world, Jesus Christ, the true LED, light extinguishing darkness. That's what LED stands for, all right? So the idea here is if you're here this morning and you are not a believer, you don't have the light. You're burning something dim, and it needs to be replaced. If you're here this morning and you don't have the incomparable light of Jesus Christ, then you are living in the darkness. You need something that burns brighter than the dim lights of this world. You need something that is more efficient than your own good works. You need something this morning that is terribly expensive, so expensive that you can't afford it, but at the same time, it's offered freely to you through the blood of Jesus, God's only son, who died for you, who was raised again, that you could understand what it means to walk in the light. And so if you're here this morning and you are discouraged, there is a ray of hope for you today through Jesus. If you're here this morning and you are afraid, allow the light of Jesus Christ to shine on your fears. If you're here this morning and you have doubt and you're in darkness and you're in unbelief, let the light of God's word shine on your problem and shine on his word and illuminate the truth that Jesus saves and Jesus sanctifies and he will light up your world and change you forever. But it's got to be replaced. The sinfulness of sin in your life has to be done away with, and you need to replace it with something better. You've got to be pulled out of the dominion of darkness by the sovereign grace of God, and you have to be pulled into the light of Jesus Christ. So may every heart and every home have a replacement of the light of the world with the light of Christ. May you this very day get rid of that which is dim and fill it with that which truly illuminates. May you on this day see and understand the confidence that the Christian can have in the Lord Jesus Christ as we are called to walk as children of light. This morning, I want to continue that message I told you from a couple of weeks ago. It's got three major headings, and I'm going to spend the first few moments here reviewing last time we were together, the week before Mother's Day, and then we'll jump into the new material. So for that reason, I've already filled out half of your blanks for you. 
You can thank me later, but half of it's done. So you can kind of sit back. If you're going to catch a siesta, do it right now, and then I'll wake you up when we get started with the second half, all right? So here's number one. Do not become a partner with the sons of disobedience. Rather, imitate God as his beloved child. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about how Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 6, really discuss what it means to walk in love. And, 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 and in verse 7, where we're going to kind of pick up this message, is where we are, we are told there in verse 7 that we are not to be partners with those of the world, right? Therefore, do not be partners with them. And so we had to be reminded uh, last time about who we are. Look at number one there in your outline, realize who you are. And we talked about how verse 1 of chapter 5 says that you are a beloved child of God. He's writing to believing Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus in the midst of a pagan culture who had come to Christ, and he's reminding them that they belong to God. They are his children, and as children of God, they are to imitate Almighty God. Number two, we talked about how you got to remember what Christ has done. Verse two there talks about how Jesus loved us, and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant aroma, that which you could never do, earn your way to heaven. Christ did for you as he offered his life as a sacrifice. It's a precious aroma, so you have to remember that Jesus did that for you. Thirdly, because of that, if you become a Christian, you repent by God's grace, then you must also learn to reject the immorality of the unregenerate. And we spent some time talking about sexual immorality of this world, and it is also rampant to some degree by professing believers in the church that we are called to step out of that darkness and into light. We are called to not live an immoral lifestyle, but a God-honoring one. And then we talked about not only do we got to get rid of sexual immorality, but fourth, we've got to remove the filthy talk of the ungrateful, those who aren't really thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, those who need their mouths washed out with soap, those who are filled with coarse jesting and silly talk, and, and, they, and, and they interact with, with different jokes in our culture. And the Bible tells us that you ought to have no part of it. And then that led us to verse 7, that you got to refuse to be a partner with evil. That if you're walking in the light, you are no longer in the darkness. You've been saved. You're being sanctified. You're called to be holy. You're called to be separate. And that's why we turn to 2 Corinthians 6.14. Why don't you turn there with me just real quick. I can't help it. We've got to go back just for a second, all right? We were called in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so that passage set us up with five different reasons of why you should never be equally yoked with an unbeliever. You should never be, if you're thinking about getting married, you should never consider getting married to an unbeliever. If you're in a business or you're starting a business, you, could, you should never think about getting in business equally with an unbeliever. You should never involve yourself in any spiritual enterprise that would be 50-50 in a sense with someone who's not a believer. And here's why. There's five reasons that Paul gives in that text in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following. The first one is this, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? I mean, what in the world do those who are walking the righteous path of God's word have in common with those who break the law every day, all day, who are lawless? Absolutely nothing. Secondly, or what fellowship has light with darkness? In other words, what do they have in common? One is light, one is darkness. If you have darkness and you turn on the light, then it's no longer dark. So the idea is they have nothing in common. Or third, what accord, verse 15, has Christ with Belial? We talked about Belial is another word for Satan. How much commonality does Christ have with Satan? 
absolutely nothing. That you couldn't find an entity that is more diametrically opposed to one another than the Lord Jesus Christ and the devil. Or what portion, fourth, does a believer share with an unbeliever? We talked about while we may have some common interest in cheering for the Dodgers or pulling for the Clippers tonight. Come on. But, you know, the idea is those things are common temporal interests, but it has nothing to do with a worldview about who you are and where you're going. We have absolutely nothing involved in common with an unbeliever in that sense. Or number five, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The temple of God is a holy place, the holy of holies set aside for the high priest to go in once a year. Now, as that veil has been torn from top to bottom by the sacrifice of Christ, the Bible tells us you are that temple. And you, as a temple of God, are not to be playing around with idols. And so after looking at that, we were just reminded, you know what? We can't be a partner with the world. Light and darkness do not mix. And that led us into our second major heading, do not walk in the darkness, walk as children of light. And in verse 8, we were reminded where it says here that you were darkness. For at one time, you were darkness. It doesn't say you were like darkness or you were in the dark or you hung out around the dark. No, it says that you were darkness. That was your very nature. That was your very character. That was your makeup. That's who you were. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You followed the prince of the power of the air, just like the rest of the children of disobedience. That's who you were. You were darkness. But notice the verse that goes on to say, then now you are light. And notice again, it doesn't say you are in the light. You are around the light. It says you are light. That's what God expects of you. That's what God places inside of you. You say, well, hold on, Adam. How can I be the light? Isn't Jesus the light of the world? Well, certainly he is, where he says in John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. One of the seven I am statements of John is that it is Jesus is the light of the world. He says that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so if Jesus is the light, how can we be the light? We talked a little bit about how we are reflections of the light. It is Christ in us. In and of ourselves, we have no light. When Christ comes in, he turns on the light. And then that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel. No! Don't let Satan blow it out, right? But you put it on the stand, and it gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, let your light shine. It's what God commands of us. It's what God expects of us, that you were darkness, now you are light. And with that in mind, we are next blank there that I filled in for you, is that we're to walk as children of light. If we're in the light, if we are the light with Christ in us, then we're to walk this way. Walk as children of light. And that's what Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are all about, walking. It's about applying. It's about understanding that what Jesus did in the indicatives of the first three chapters is now to be applied in the imperatives of the last three chapters of this book, which is why we're called in Ephesians 4, 1, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In Ephesians 4, 17, to not walk as the Gentiles do. In Ephesians 5, 2, to walk in love. And so now we set it up for Ephesians 5, 7 to 14, walk in light. 
this is the message for us to hear today, that we are to walk in the light. And so we started asking the question, well, what does that look like? How do you walk in the light? And in verse 9, we see here that he mentions the fruit of light. And I talked to you last time again about you're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit, right? In Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit of light's way easier. It's only three things, okay? That which is good, that which is right, that which is true. The next time you're in a conversation with somebody, say, hey, have you heard about the fruit of light? And they're going to say, what? And you're like, don't you know your Bible? It's in Ephesians, man. Chapter 5, verse 9, the fruit of light is that which is right, that which is good, that which is true. All right, now wake up, because now we're getting to the second part of the message. So now you got to get your pen out, get ready to fill in some blanks. We're going to get after it. Are you ready? Are you with me? You got the light on? All right, let's go. Here we go. So at this point, we also not only talk about the fruit of light, we want to talk about the function of light. Look at verse 10 with me, if you will, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In this verse, in verse 10, there's two words that I want to highlight that I think tell us what the function of light is. If you're using your ESV, the first word is going to be that word discern. So let me say it this way, your next blank, providing proof for authentic faith. That word discern is also translated as trying to learn, as it is in the NASB. The original word is doximazo. It literally means to prove. It means to approve or to test. In other words, the general idea of this word discernment or trying to learn, it has a positive connotation with an expectation of a positive outcome. So the whole point of light is a positive discernment that you and I can grow and learn in as our faith is tested. Maybe you'll understand it a little better. It's the same word as used in 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn with me there, if you will. This is a familiar passage. You'll see the same word used in a little different way that might help the light come on for you if you're not seeing it. No pun intended. All right, you ready? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1, uh, excuse me, verses 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, even if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested... That's our word for discernment. That's dokimazos. That, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are we talking about? Your faith must have discernment. Your faith must be tested. Your faith must be put to the fire of the trials that God brings in your life. And it's supposed to be brought in that way so that you can see and so that others can see that it's genuine. Look, the whole point of Job being tested with trials in his life was not to expose the man. But it was to show that God-given faith never fails. That's the point of light, is to show in your life that God-given faith is of greater worth than pure gold. And the illustration here in the First Peter text is that of a goldsmith heating up the gold. And the, the dross and the impurities rise to the top, and a goldsmith swipes off the top of those impurities and discards them so that that gold gets more refined, more pure, more, more of the properties that pure gold is supposed to have. And it's all done by being tested. It's done through discernment. In fact, that same word for proof or for test that we've read here both in Ephesians 
uh, 5.10 and also in the 1 Peter uh, 1.7 verse, that same word refers to the first century process of making pottery. Potters uh, baked clay pots to give them strength. And after they got them out of the kiln, sometimes you would look at those clay pots and occasionally they might have a crack in it. And so if they had a crack in it and the potter didn't want to lose a lot of money, he would grab some wax and he'd take some wax and fill in those pots and then put them out to sell. And a dishonest potter would put them out to sell at the same price as an honest potter. And the the people would come and pick up that pot. And the only way to tell whether it was authentic or not is to do what? Hold it up to the light. And so you could take the pot, hold it up to the light. There's sunlight that's coming through. The areas that are wax are more translucent. The areas that are solid clay are more opaque. And so that's the way you test whether or not this is true light. And if you found a bad potter, you punch him in the face. Now, you forgive him. But the idea is like you got to say, hey, dude, you can't do that. You can't fool me like that because I've held it up to the light. Trustworthy potters would actually mark good pieces of their pottery with this word, Dokimas, which means genuine, so that they would know that this is a literal, genuine clay piece of pottery. In fact, even in today's world, little has changed. One of the ways you can detect counterfeit bills is by holding it up to the light. Did you know that? Uh, For all bills of U.S. currency, except for the $1 bill and the $2 bills, which aren't worth much anyway, But, you know, all of them except for those two actually have a security thread that runs from the top to the bottom on the left side. It's a little small plastic strip. And if you hold it up to the light, you can see whether or not this security strip is in those dollar bills. In fact, why don't you take out all of your $100 bills? Because we're going to take another offering here in just a minute. But we want to make sure it's authentic, right? No, but the, the truth is this. It, you can not only see that strip in the light, but if you have UV uh, light, what's also called black light, you can shine that UV light on those bills, and you can see that different colors are associated with different amounts. In fact, the $5 bill should glow blue. The $10 bill should glow orange. The $20 bill should glow green. The $50 bill glows yellow, and the $100 bill should glow pink. Did you know they have a $1,000 bill as well? It glows Placerita Bible Church. It's incredible. But seriously, that's how you do some of your checks. There's lots of other ways you can check out counterfeit money, but the light test is the first and simplest test you can use to see if something's authentic or not. I love what Warren Wiersbe writes here, reminding us in that first Peter text, he says this, quote, the trials of life test our faith to prove its sincerity, a faith that cannot be tested, cannot be trusted. A person who abandons his faith when the going gets tough is only proving that he had no faith at all. And so here we see that the function of light is to show something as it really is as approved by God. And I just wonder, as you, as an earthen vessel, were held up to the light of God's word on this very day, would you have any cracks? If you have cracks, have they been appropriately dealt with, or have you just stuck wax in there? If you were, to, if you were a dollar bill, and you were held up before the light of God's word, how much would you be worth? What color would you glow? Would you be authentic What part do you have to play in the kingdom of God? God expects you to be a light 
to burn brightly for his glory, to attract others to the authenticity of your God-given faith so that he might be magnified, so that others might be saved. Second function in verse 10 of light is not only to approve of that genuine faith, but secondly, it's about pursuing what is pleasing to the Lord. Look at verse 10 again and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what light is doing. It's helping you discern and it's helping you learn how to be pleasing to the Lord. The idea here is that if you are walking in the light, then you are consistently seeking what it means to be pleasing to the Lord. This word for pleasing is only used nine times in the New Testament, eight times by Paul, and this is the only time it's used in the whole book of Ephesians. This is the one time in the whole letter that Paul says, you know what, guys? You got to be pleasing to God. You ought to be thinking and learning and discerning so when the light of God's word shines on you, God is well pleased with you. Now, let me be clear here. God is pleased with Christ in you. So if you are a Christian, pleasing God is impossible without being regenerated. As long as you're an unbeliever, he is not pleased with you. But he's pleased with you in the ultimate sense when you repent, trust in Christ. Christ is in you. Now God has adopted you into his family. And he will always be your father. And you will always be his son. And in one regard, you will always be pleasing to the Lord. Because positionally, you belong to God. Yet, equally true is the idea that when you disobey God, he is not pleased. In fact, we talked already about he is grieved. When we sin against God, he's grieved with what we do. And so this verse is talking about more in that relational sanctification aspect and how we relate to God, that we want to do things that please God, not to earn his favor ultimately, like becoming a Christian, for that is impossible. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. But if you have been saved through faith, then of course you want to please God, just like a good child wants to please his mom and dad by obeying them. This is exactly what God calls us to do. And it's interesting that these same two words of discerning and pleasing are used in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Why don't you turn there with me, and you see these same two uh, words and concepts brought together in this other familiar passage, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, that's our word doximos, right? The, the, word, for, the word for genuine, tested, proving, uh, that by testing that you may discern, there it's used again, what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable? That's the word for pleasing, acceptable and perfect. So in other words, our goal in life as regenerated believers is to, that our faith might be constantly tested so that our life would constantly be pleasing to the Lord as we're living a life uh, wanting to be pleasing to God. You know, it can be hard sometimes to please somebody. And maybe you have uh, had a boss at work that seemed like no matter what you did, they were never satisfied with how you did your work, how you, did, you performed in, in your particular part of the job. They just seemed to always be getting on your case. Or maybe you've had a coach somewhere in your past who was never pleased. You couldn't run hard enough. And it didn't matter how many suicides you did and how many free throws that you shot and how many times you tried to serve in, in tennis or whatever. Your coach just kept getting on to you that you're not doing it the right way. Maybe you had a music teacher you could never sing the right note, and they kept telling you that you're singing from your throat and not from your diaphragm. 
what does that even mean? You know, but anyway, you know, they, they kept getting on to you all the time. Or maybe, you know, you've had a, a, a teacher who's always grading your papers down. And they're just like, ah, that's a C paper. And you're like, dude, that's so subjective. That was an A paper. And you know it. I mean, what, what do you do? You, you, you don't know sometimes how to please somebody. I, I've been told that some men don't know how to please their wives by getting them the right gift. Now, I can't believe that would happen in some marriages because it is so easy to buy for your wife. All you got to do is buy exactly what she wants. If you do that, you're going to please her every time. That's all you got to do. Guys, it's not that hard, right? Lord, help us, right? Sometimes it can be a little challenging. In fact, I remember one time my dad was asking uh, my brother and I, hey, what do you think I should get your mom this year for Christmas? And we're throwing out, you know, this and that, Legos and maybe this and maybe that. And so my dad ends up buying a Lazy Boy recliner, blue. Mama opens it up on Christmas Day, and let's just say Daddy still hadn't recovered yet. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that was a bad Christmas at our place because sometimes... You're just not sure what to get the other person that would please them. And the same is true even in the world of theology. There's mythology of different attempts to appease Zeus or Apollos or Athena. How can we do these crazy things in order to appease our God? This is mythology, right? Even in the Bible, there's the idea of sacrificing your own child to offer to the God of Moloch, for example. How, how sad that many don't know how to please God. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that God has made it abundantly clear how we're to please him. We please God by obeying him. If you love God, you will obey him. The way to please God, again, this is in a a sanctification type way, the way to please God is by obeying him. He has given us his word, which reveals to us his will, that we would walk in humility, And that we would walk in gentleness, and we would walk in patience, and we would walk in love, and we would walk in the light. And as you walk in an obedient lifestyle to God, he is pleased with you. Now, he's pleased through Christ. Remember, I don't want you to get confused on that. If you're a Christian, he's already pleased with you, but he's pleased with you in that relational sense of you will understand and commune with the sweetness of God in such a beautiful way that you'll never want anything else. And in each activity you're involved in, and in each word that you say, and every movie that you watch, and every time you spend a dollar bill, you ought to be thinking, does this please the Lord? Is this pleasing to God? Because I want to honor what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether I am at home or absent, my aim is to be pleasing to the Lord. Can you say that today? Is that your life's goal? Is that your pursuit? Is Christ's light shining through you? Are you walking this way? So, walking as children of light means, number one, don't become partakers with the world. Number two, don't walk in darkness, but walk in light. Here we move on now to number three, do not take part in the works of darkness. Expose them to the light. And so here in verse 11, let's talk about the what. And the what is this, do not get involved, but expose. Do not get involved, but expose. And there in verse 11, we read, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So here's a new thought for us. Only if you're walking in the light, do you have the ability to expose darkness. 
I mean, you get that, right? If you're walking in darkness, you can't expose darkness. But if you're walking in the light, then the very fact that you're in the light enables you, and here we have a responsibility to expose the deeds of darkness. This word expose is used 17 times in the New Testament. Eight times are those used by Paul, and it's seen twice here in our passage, here in verse 11, and then again in verse 13, where it says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So God cares about teaching us what it means to expose, which the word literally means to reveal hidden things, or to convict, or to reprove, or to correct. In other words, the point of exposing is not to embarrass somebody. It's not to expose them like, I caught you. I got you. You're going down, man. You're busted. That's just not really the heart here. The heart here is like, we want to expose it so that you can be convicted and so that you can be corrected and so that you can be brought in out of that pathway to darkness which leads to hell and you can be brought into the pathway of light which leads to heaven there is a good goal to exposure this word exposure can be used to talk about somebody's theology in other words it could be used evangelistically just this past weekend i had the privilege of catching a flight from lax to atlanta to speak to my niece's graduating high school class. I had a great time being there. I just had a little trouble getting there because my flight was supposed to leave at 11 a.m. from LAX, and we get on the plane. We're just about to push back, and all of a sudden the pilot comes over and says, ladies and gentlemen, I regret to inform you we're going to have to deboard this plane because we have a host of mosquitoes in the cargo pit. We just got in from Guatemala, Guatemala, Mess that up big time, forgive me. All right, just got in from there. There's mosquitoes all in uh, this plane. You guys got to get off, and we have to fumigate the plane. It's going to take one to two hours. So we're like, oh, oh man, you know, well, just one hour is not too bad. If it's two hours, I guess we'll be okay. So we all exit the plane. We're sitting out there. After two hours, they came back to us, and they said, well, because we're in the lovely state of California, there are all kinds of regulations that have to be signed. We're still trying to get our paperwork together. There's five different official documents that have to be signed for us to get this problem straightened out. It's going to be another three hours. Okay, all right, another three hours. They come back after three hours, and they say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so sorry to tell you, but we have to call the FAA to find out which pesticide we can use that is accepted in the state of California because we don't want to hurt the environment. Okay, three hours after that, they said, we just finally found the chemical. Please bear with us as the plane is being taken to the hangar. Okay, three hours after that, they say, well, we have to wait uh, for it to air out before you can get on. And so we're just sitting there like, oh my goodness, it was funny to watch people. Some people are so mad. I mean, I saw some devils running around in that airport. <laughs> Some people just started laughing because it's like, what can you do? This is hysterical. I'm just working. I got my computer out. I'm working on this sermon, right? I'm just like, oh, man, I got to get this thing down. And so I'm working, and this lady keeps talking to me. And I was like, you know what? You know, what, what am I doing? I'm a pastor. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm completely uh, unaware of this opportunity to witness to this lady who keeps asking me questions and talking to me. And finally, I'm like, Adam, you got to be the light, I shut my computer, and I looked at her, and we just started talking. She asked what I do. I told her what I did, and she said, well, you know what? I believe in every religion, and I'm like, oh, really? She said, I believe in God. I believe in Allah. I believe in the religion of the Buddhist uh, religion and of, of uh, you know, of everything. I mean, she just listed all the religions you could think of, of Hinduism, and I said, I looked at her, and I said, you know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> 
she looked at me, what do you mean by that? You know, at this point, we had kind of been built a little bit of rapport, okay? But the, the point, I was trying to... <laughs> I was trying to grab her attention, right? She says, well, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, well, it is absolutely impossible for all those religions to be talking about the same God. So I began to talk to her about some of the tenets of those different religions, how they contradict each other, and how they certainly contradict the Bible. And then I began to share the gospel with her. And I'm telling you, the light started shining, and you could see in her head, she's like, you know what? Nobody ever told me that. She's like, that makes total sense. She's like, I've never even thought about it that way. You're right. Some of them are right, and some of them are wrong. And I said, no, there's just one that's right. And that's God. And that's the life. This is what Jesus said. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So either Jesus is correct or he's a liar. And you can't have it both ways. And I said, hey, I'm sorry if I'm preaching at you, but I'm just trying to share the truth with you. So I left it by just saying, hey, you know what? I encourage you to take the gospel of John and you read a chapter a day and you ask God to show you the light of his word. And if God is, is the God of the Bible, I believe he will speak to you through scripture and show you who Jesus really is. She said, you know what, I like that challenge. I'm going to do that. So let's pray for her that God would work in her heart, that the light would come on. And so part of the way that we're trying to be the light here and expose darkness is just the idea of the darkness of theology. It's the darkness of this world is in this dim, dark cloud of, of, that lacks common sense because it lacks truth because they lack Jesus. And our goal is to shine bright in the darkness. So that's one way this could be talking about. But another way it's talking about, I believe, is even the idea of exposing sin. It's the whole idea of, of church discipline or admonishing those who are in sin. I mean, listen to what Matthew 18, 15 says. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Well, that's a way to be a light. You're walking with the Lord hopefully in a Matthew 7 way, removing the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to remove the speck out of his eye so you're telling him his fault. That's exposing sin. That's what we're to be doing on a daily basis. We're to be shining the light to expose sin in each other, not to embarrass each other or to kick each other while we're down, but to help each other come back to the light, to repent of our sin, to come back to a right relationship with God and with each other. I mean, the whole motive of church discipline is church restoration. That's the whole idea there. And so this is what a Christian must do. We don't, we don't take part in what they're doing by the grace of God, but we expose sin by the grace of God so that we can really help those who are entangled in their sin. And of course, the culture would tell us that that's none of your business that you let people do whatever they want to do in the privacy of their own home, and it's not your business. God says you're to shine like light. You're to shine to like light to believers and unbelievers alike, trusting that the Holy Spirit will use the Word of God to light them up. And sometimes it's about exposing sin. In the Bible, the sin of Achan was exposed. In the Bible, the sin of David was exposed. In the Bible, the sin of the woman at the well was exposed. In the Bible, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was exposed. We cannot be a church that's not about exposing sin. The Bible says in Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Well, how does that happen? By the light going forth. You and I are called to be that light source. That's the why. Let me move on to the why. The why? Why should we be shining the light? Because there's great shame in secrecy. There is shame in the darkness. There is shame in secrecy. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
You say, well, Adam, well, how, how does this work? If we're supposed to be light in exposing them, but then this verse says it's sh- shameful to even talk about it, how, how do you work with that? Well, the answer is easy. We still are called to shine light on darkness because what's happening there is not right, and it's shameful. We want to expose it in a good, healthy way. This is what Jesus says in John three nineteen and following, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's what we're called to be. We're, we're called to be that light that carefully and under a controlled way exposes those things. You know, when I had the privilege of working as a PA in open heart surgery, there was more than one occasion where we had to operate on a patient that was HIV positive. And in those moments, you have to be extra careful about that particular disease that you don't get stuck. You better be certain. We were really really careful with the scalpel on that day, really careful with the needle on that day so we don't get stuck. And there's some diseases and some chemicals and some nuclear byproducts that are so extremely deadly that even the most highly trained and the best protected technicians and scientists who work with them are in constant danger. No sensible person would work around such things carelessly or haphazardly. In the same way, some sins are so spiritually disgraceful and dangerous that they should be sealed off, not only from direct contact, but even from our conversation. They should be exposed only in the extent that is necessary to get rid of them. That's the job you and I have. Next, we read about the how. How do you do this? Well, it's by shining the light that things are made visible. You've got to shine your light. Look at verses 13 and 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. It's like this. Once God's truth and his wisdom and his goodness is, is really seen for what it is, then things become more clear. I mean, the path of righteousness, when you look at it, may not appear to be that attractive because there's some guidelines there that God gives of how to walk this path. While the path of wickedness or darkness may look really attractive because you don't see the consequences. But if you shine the light down the end of the road of the pathway to darkness and you see hellfire waiting for those who walk there, then anybody with any common sense would be like, whoop, I'm not going down that path. I want to go down the path of righteousness because it leads to eternity. On the way back from Georgia, I had the chance to share with another guy. He was a businessman, had a lot of money. Uh, We're talking about a lot of things. And I said, you know what? You would be wise not to set yourself up for retirement in this world, but to set yourself up for retirement in heaven forever. It is a fool that only takes care of this life, a faithful person who looks to God can take care of the life to come. And it's not about you or your money or your work. It's about the priceless sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sinners like you. We have got to shine as the light. And I feel like so many times we feel like somehow we don't have a good argument because we get out in the culture and we start to debate and talk to people and we get shame thinking maybe that we're the doofus and we're not. You're a defender of the faith. You have the truth and the light of God's word shining in you. You've got to shine. You've got to let it out. 
You don't have anything to be afraid of. And yet so many times we're just kind of want to huddle over here because we know we're in the minority and the people look and scoff at us. But verse 14 here is actually a quote from uh, Isaiah chapter 60, which really kind of moves us to number four. Let's go ahead and go to D, the who. It's all about the enlightenment of Christ. That's what it's about. It's not about you. It's about Christ in you. For this verse says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. Now, again, in the Isaiah 60, 1 and 2, when that's given, it is addressing the future of redeemed Israel with her king in the millennium. That's the context, all right? But the king has already come. And in a sense, that light has already wakened you up. And so he's teaching it to these New Testament believers to say, we know what's happening ultimately, but we want to be living that out right now. We want to live this out right now to, 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 to awaken those who are asleep, to arise from the dead, and to realize that it's all about Christ. It's about Christ in you. You are the light. Christ in you makes all things visible. And to make visible means to make manifest or to make known that which is previously unknown. This is your job. When I was talking to that lady, she didn't know the gospel. She thought she knew and had rejected it or added it into pluralism. And by the grace of God, the gospel began to shine on her thought process. That's what God wants to do with us is to use us as his witness to the world to light it up. And you and I don't have time to be afraid. You and I don't have time to be scared. You and I don't have time to stick our head in the mud when the world is going to hell. We're called to be that light and to shine for the Lord Jesus Christ. To be sure, the light is not political reform. The light is not military prowess. The light is not economic stability. The light is not even religious freedom. The light is Jesus Christ shining through his choice vessels of mercy that we might reflect the glory of God and light up the path of righteousness. In his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin tells of the time that he wanted to convince the citizens of Philadelphia to light the streets at night as a protection against crime and as a convenience for evening activities. Failing to convince them by his words, he decided to show his neighbors how compelling a single light could be. He bought an attractive lantern, polished the glass, placed it on a long bracket that extended out from the front of his house. Each evening, as darkness descended, he lit the wick. His neighbors soon noticed the warm glow in front of his house. Passersby found that the light helped them to avoid tripping over the protruding stones in the roadway. Soon, others placed lanterns in front of their homes, and eventually the city of Philadelphia recognized the need for having well-lighted streets. That's the power of example. That's the power of one Light shining for God in such a way that you don't care what others say. You let your light shine. You let God do the work of sharing that light one at a time, one person at a time. That's the power of the gospel that should be going forth from this church and from your life at your work and at your school and in your neighborhood as you seek to walk as children of light. Just a couple of real practical take-home thoughts that you can share with your family if you're a dad 
or if you're a mom with kids, you share these with your kids. If you're in a small group, you work through these, uh, these principles. They're so helpful. Number one, are you becoming a partner with the world in any way? Maybe you need to spend a little time asking your wife or asking your husband or asking your kids or having them ask you whether or not that you as a family have been partnering with the world. Could people look at your family and see them as a light? Number two, does the light that shines on your life show the world a genuine faith or a cracked faith? Look, all of our faiths have a few cracks in them. The question is, are we fixing it with clay or are we fixing it with wax? Are we coming to Christ and repenting and asking him to restore us into the joy of our salvation? Or are we faking it by performance-driven efforts? We don't need any wax in this church. We need those who've been tested and true as those who've been made by God. Number three, is Christ shining in your life to expose evil and awaken others to the beauty of holiness? I don't know about you, but I don't like dim lights. I like light lights that are bright. That's what God's called you to be. And when you're a light like that, people might see for the first time the beauty of who God really is. The beauty of salvation, the beauty of grace, the beauty of redemption. It's our job to walk as children of light. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage that gives us so many practical ways to think through and understand what it means to walk as children of light. God, we want to bear the fruit of light, that which is good, that which is right, that which is true. We want to take part in the function of light. God, we want to be those who shine for you. Give us a bolder faith. Give us a tenacity to hold to the truth. Let us burn for Christ with efficiency. And I pray that the light would extinguish the darkness in our lives and in the situations and in the context and in the, the areas of influence that you place us. May we not be twiddling our thumbs, sitting around waiting for somebody to stand up and say something, but may we be what you've called us to be, the light of the world. Help us, God, to do it in your strength, resting in the finished work of the cross, accomplishing the works that you've ordained for us, that we would walk in them and that you would raise us up as a church and as individuals to shine for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.